the United States and the Soviet Union on a sheet of ice in Lake Placid, New York. Muller trying to turn. There's the left foot. What a tracking shot. Johnny Muller. If you see a 9-9, Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. You're listening to a podcast from Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, an online archive series showcasing the work of expert historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'll be hosting the series, asking each guest to choose an important document or artefact they think is of great significance in the Cold War sports arena. In this podcast series, we're looking in detail at some of the sporting systems in operation in rival states. We'll look at the GDR and the USSR as the lead nations of the Eastern Bloc. But on the other side of the sporting fence was the United States. Toby Ryder is a Cold War sport historian specialising in ideology, propaganda and diplomacy, what you might call the dark arts. And from the early Cold War, the US set out to make sport have a propaganda value. Toby, before we get into the dark arts, let's talk about the, the US system. How was it compared to the Soviet system? Well, in many ways, it was the the complete antithesis. Uh, The U.S. sporting establishment, U.S. sporting traditions were based upon private enterprise, uh, individuals, groups, without government support, um, pouring their energies into organizing teams, uh, leagues, uh, national federations. Uh, This meant, for example, that each and every Olympic year from 1896 forward, Uh, when the US Olympic team was ready to start raising funds to get its team wherever it needed to go. It always called upon uh, private funds, donations from the public, never state support. And so the contrast with uh, uh, totalitarian regimes was profound, Uh, whereas fascist governments, communist governments would fund teams. Uh, The organisation of teams was always a state affair. Uh, This was never the case with the United States, and certainly for the American public um, and American sports leaders, uh, this was something that they celebrated and trumpeted and believed gave them, in many ways, a a, a moral upper hand over other countries. Because, of course, not just totalitarian regimes, but also a lot of Western uh, democracies also funded athletics at the federal or governmental level. So for the U.S., uh, it always maintained this uh, strict distinction between uh, state and private spheres when it came to sport. Well, the U.S. has always had this uh, uh, belief that it held the moral high ground and that it was fighting the good fight. Uh, But when it came to the Cold War, there was an element of having to get this message across on on a global level. Well, when did that start and how good were they at doing this? Efforts uh, for the U.S. government, at least, I mean, long before the Cold War, uh, private individuals, U.S. sports officials uh, have always been uh, hailing uh, the private traditions and the moral superiority and the amateur ideal uh, displayed by American athletes. But it was really only during the, the early Cold War years that the U.S. government got into the business of trying to project these ideals abroad. Um, It was a process that started slowly. Um, It was part of the US efforts to tell the tale of America to overseas audiences in the changing geopolitical uh, atmosphere of the early Cold War years, where America felt that 
Uh, they needed to get their message across, the message that they were not this distant imperialistic aggressor that was trying to take control of the world, as was in many ways the theme of Soviet propaganda about America. They were trying to tell uh, overseas audiences that America was an open, uh, free and democratic country. And sport was a really great way to try and convey this message. But it was when the Soviet Union really started to ramp up its own sport-related propaganda, its own uh, sports diplomacy program, that the US felt that it needed to respond. And this response really peaked uh, in 1951 onwards. 1951 was the year the USSR uh, was accepted into the Olympic movement, which really put the Soviets on the world stage in terms of international sport. And so the US felt that they knew the Soviets were going to try and use this stage and exploit it for communist propaganda. And so they retaliated. And it really is uh, as simple as that. Race relations, without question, were a, were a disaster for US propagandists. It was their Achilles heel, because no matter how much they promoted the merits of American democracy, freedom, equality in US society, race relations were there and they were unavoidable. Nevertheless, US propagandists tried to avoid them. And they did this by creating or projecting an image of progress and change in US society. They didn't necessarily deny that race relations were an issue. What they did do was to try and provide examples of uh, African-Americans, and in the case of my research, African-American athletes, that were gaining success in American society, that were getting um, a certain level of respect uh, and wealth, that were uh, reaching high levels of education uh, and employment. Athletes, for example, like uh, Willie Mays, a famous baseball player, Jersey Joe Walcott, the aging boxer who became heavyweight champion at the age of 37. Uh, these were examples of athletes that the USIA and other propagandists could point to as symbols of progress in American society. But even then, of course, it was a very selective uh, vision that they chose to project to overseas audiences. Of course, during the 1950s, even though we're on the back of Jackie Robinson's um, seminal breakthrough in Major League Baseball, black athletes were still very much on the margins of American society, relatively paid less, often stacked in lesser positions in certain sports such as American football, and still um, without question, not given the adulation and respect they deserved compared to their white compatriots. And then you've got people who are something of a wild card, like Cassius Clay stroke Muhammad Ali, who you're never quite sure where that one's going. And then you've got the 1968 Mexico Olympics with uh, John Carlos. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the... The fascinating aspects of the US government's effort to use African-American athletes as diplomatic tools were those examples that backfired when athletes did go on goodwill tours as promoters of American society. Sometimes they didn't say what they were supposed to say. Sometimes they didn't follow the script. It really should be no surprise that US propaganda in the 1950s avoided stories where African-American athletes were outspoken 
where they did criticise the government. And certainly materials uh, on uh, Muhammad Ali and his exploits throughout the 60s and 70s would not have been a prominent part of US propaganda. It wouldn't have portrayed the type of image that the US was trying to project. Instead, um, athletes that were far more let's say following the line of Damien Thomas's research um, acting like good Negroes, uh, they became the types of athletes that US government tried to use but again there are obviously examples where this uh, approach backfired. I mean it seems incredible uh, to me as an Englishman for American propagandists to think that black athletes are going to go out and say everything is fine when you've got Mississippi's burning, you've got Emmett Till, you've got the cities on fire because of exactly that issue, Birmingham, Alabama, and, and those uh, very ferocious dogs that are being set upon the black population. I mean, it, that's naivety, surely, of the highest order. I suppose, looking back on it, it is now, but I think the situation that propagandists were put in was, do we say nothing at all, or do we try and say something? And in general, they chose the option of, of trying to construct an image, as I said, that was uh, of progress and change rather than the obvious and frequent um, explosions in, in American society. And as always with the United States, these efforts are, are working at several levels, aren't they? I mean, not only uh, are they uh, making the attempts to get positive coverage into uh, the newspapers and into the global media uh, outlets, but also... Uh, they start to fund exile groups. Yeah, this is a, a really fascinating component of US covert strategy in the early Cold War years. Um, the decision by Eastern European athletes to defect um, from their various countries was a tremendous propaganda coup for the US. Absolutely tremendous. Here were some of uh, the most notable and prominent figures uh, behind the Iron Curtain, making the decision, a very deliberate and considered decision, to flee from communism and live in the West. They chose a different way of life. Now, one of the uh, features of this, as well as the US government using these stories in their propaganda output to illustrate the difference in life between East and West, is that a lot of these defections were actually secretly funded by the US government. One of the most prominent, uh, of course, was the 1956 uh, defection of uh, 34 Hungarian and four Romanian athletes to the United States um, after the Melbourne Summer Olympic Games. Now, of course, the way that the US government told the story and the way that uh, the people of the, the United States heard the story was that Sports Illustrated magazine had facilitated this defection, that they had met with Hungarian athletes during the Melbourne Olympics, communicated with them and decided that they would help them to start a new life in the free world. Um, but what Sports Illustrated didn't tell us and what the United States Information Agency didn't reveal is that the Melbourne defection was largely organised. In fact, the idea of it came from an exiled sports organisation known as the Hungarian National Sports Federation, which was funded by another Eastern European exile organisation called the Free Europe Committee, which was funded in extension by the Central Intelligence Agency. In fact, it was one of the most prominent front organisations in the CIA's covert web throughout the 1950s and the 1960s.
So behind the scenes of the Melbourne defection, essentially the US intelligence establishment was uh, uh, highly influential in trying to organise the defection. And not only that, but State Department officials, government propagandists made sure that it was easy for this, these Hungarian athletes to get to American shores. Of course, other Hungarians that were fleeing in the wake of the Hungarian Revolution in 1956 had to pass through a plethora of bureaucratic obstacles to get to wherever they needed to go, particularly the United States. But these Hungarian athletes uh, were flown almost without red tape to the United States and avoided most of the screening processes that other refugees had to face. Um, and of course it should come as no surprise that Sports Illustrated magazine was actually involved in the defection in the first place. Sports magaz uh, Illustrated magazine is a subsidiary of Time Incorporated. Time Incorporated is run by Henry Luce. Henry Luce has ever so close connections with the Central Intelligence Agency and many of his publishers and employees are also have tight links uh, to the US government's propaganda apparatus. So uh, defections were something that the US government secretly aided and also once a defection had taken place they exploited it to the maximum in their propaganda output by not only telling of how athletes fled to the West but also there was the happy ending which was really the cherry on top of the, uh, on top of the uh, icing in that not only had these athletes fled, but now they were living in the United States, they were attending college, they had jobs, and according to the propaganda program, were living happier and healthier lives. That's a, a lovely, soft, fluffy story, isn't it? You go back each year, now he's celebrating Christmas with his new family, etc. It, it was. Um, without, without a question, these, these stories were so deliberate. Um, and I'll give you another example. Uh, the US government would uh, make sure that stories about uh, exiled athletes were accompanied by photos. And obviously these photos were very deliberately staged, so it would show exiles laughing, having fun, and enjoying the company of American athletes and competing in America. Um, now, to us now, these seem uh, crude and rather obvious, but certainly for the United States Information Agency and the propaganda planners of the era, they felt that these stories uh, appealed to people, that they illustrated in the most clear and um, emphatic way that life was better in America, at least uh, the life that they portrayed. Who would you say won the propaganda war? One of the clear issues faced by propagandists, particularly American propagandists, was the sheer symbolic value of victories and particularly victories on the Olympic stage. The Olympic Games were the most uh, popular and well-watched uh, mega sporting event on the earth. It's certainly sporting event that was attended by the Soviet Union and the United States. Even though US propagandists would do their best to criticize sport uh, in the, behind the Iron Curtain and project favorable images of sport in the United States, Starting in 1956, when the Soviet Union uh, won uh, the most medals at the Melbourne Olympic Games, the first time they had defeated uh, the United States uh, in the Olympic Crucible, the symbolic value of that victory was really hard for US propagandists to counter, because there it was, in black and white, 
there it was published in a medal table. Now, even though medal tables were supposed to be unofficial, media outlets around the world tallied scores and published them. And so the fact that there was the Soviet Union sat atop of the medal table, it was a situation that was hard to spin for American propaganda planners. They could say that the Soviets were professionals. They could say that the Soviets were state-funded. But essentially, what it translated to was that they were bad losers, that they were finding reasons to explain away their defeat. So to answer your question, who won the propaganda war? Well, it doesn't matter how you spin a story or how you tell a tale. If your athletes are simply not as good as the opposition, and the opposition wins uh, repeatedly um, and continuously throughout a long time span, apart from the odd exception here and there. It doesn't matter how you tell that tale. Uh, the symbolic value of my athlete is better than your athlete resonates now and resonated then with global audiences. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Deal.